This program is brought to you by PersonalLifeMedia.com. Hi, and welcome to Green Talk, a podcast series from GreenLivingIdeas.com. Green Talk helps listeners in their efforts to lead more eco-friendly lifestyles through interviews with top vendors, authors, and experts from around the world. We discuss the critical issues facing the global environment today, as well as the technologies, products, and practices that you can employ to go greener in every area of your life. Hey everybody, this is Sean Daly with Green Talk Radio and GreenLivingIdeas.com and today we're going to be talking with you about zero carbon cars and the state of really the entire auto industry with regards to high fuel efficiency vehicles and alternative fuel technologies. And my guest to talk to with me on that topic is William or Bill Kemp, who is the author of Zero Carbon Car, along with a number of other books. He's actually the vice president of engineering for an energy sector corporation, a sustainable living and clean energy advocate, a leading expert in renewable energy technologies. And again, as I mentioned, the author of several books, including the Zero Carbon Car, um, the Renewable Energy Handbook, Smart Power, and Biodiesel Basics and Beyond, as well as several DVD videos on similar topics. Bill, welcome to the program. Yes, uh, thank you very much for having me. Well, it's my pleasure to have you on the program, and I've been fascinated. I've been reading the book, as I mentioned to you before the podcast. I've actually gotten through about half of it, and I haven't finished the section on where you actually go through and chronicle the story of building a zero-carbon car. But in the first half of the book, you, you talk a lot. You give a great breakdown. I, I have to say I learned quite a bit about really the sort of the state of the union, as it were, the state of the world, world's uh, fuel problems. Um, the sort of competing technologies and solutions out there and their relatives, relative advantages or merits and, and demerits. Uh, as, and then also sort of, and then you actually go into quite a bit of depth on some of them, uh, including hydrogen, which I want to get to, uh, and then into the, the various uh, other types of technologies that are out there and being sort of put forth by the government and, and uh, private sector uh, corporations and such. Uh, so I think what I'd like to do in, in this, our opportunity to talk with you today is to maybe summarize some of the, the global overarching issues with regards to today's problems uh, and, the, and the oncoming problems that we have uh, that are going to happen in the near future with you know, things like peak oil and, and so forth. And then maybe we can go through a couple of the, you know, the highlights of you know, the pros and cons of various technologies. And then I'd like to certainly, we'd like to hear about the story of building the, the zero carbon car. So does that sound okay with you, that sort of setup? Like a, a perfect flow, no problem. Okay, great. Well, it's so much, there's so much to cover, it's kind of daunting. Uh, and and I, I think that that reflects how daunting it is for your average consumer out there listening to all the PR hype and information that's going out there and sort of even figuring out what's true and what's not. It, it, it is true. It, it's an enormous amount of information, and of course, we're given, you know, an awful lot of hype and half-truths, and uh, you know, and competing, uh, competing information from various special interest groups. So, so it is a very difficult, uh, you know, topic. And of course, it's the, the probably the bigger issue is is that everybody loves cars, 
and so thinking about the uh, the demise of the uh, of the automobile as I hypothesize or uh, or uh, you know going to a more mass transit oriented uh, society is just something that people can't fathom and don't want to fathom so it's an extremely uh, difficult and touchy uh, you know touchy problem for uh, lots of folks yeah no and you and you hit the nail on the head and that is I noticed that's a central theme in your book is really just saying that the personal automobile will become a thing of the past when I'm sitting in this country at my desk in, in my home in this country I, I, I feel sort of uh, the the um, you know the bristling at that idea but I just got back from from Europe I tend to travel in Europe at least once a year to visit we have a number of uh, friends uh, that live over there and uh, and pretty soon some family so we do you know get a chance to travel and, and whenever I'm there of course we were and you talk about the TGV uh, France's high-speed train uh, system and we were on the TGV I was on the TGV with my six and a half year old son a week ago and every time I'm there it just it amazes me and everybody uses the train systems there whether it's TGV or the regular SNCF and, and that's just in France of course it's all, all throughout Europe the rail systems are excellent as are the bus systems and so forth and they don't have the, the negative connotations that, that exist here or, or if not negative connotation lack of use <laughs> as we see with the rail systems it's, it's well, you know and, there's, and of course there's good reason for that um, you know if you if you go back uh, you know to the um, you know to the uh, pre-war era um, you know Canada, the United States, and and Europe were on very similar footings. It was, uh, you know, not everybody owned a car. It was relatively new technology, and uh, and everybody used, you know, trains or, or buses, trams to, uh, you know, to uh, to commute. And then uh, then of course once the um, you know the, the Second World War uh, came along, what uh, what started to happen is that a lot of infrastructure was was blown to bits in uh, in Europe, and as there was a uh, you know a rebuild. Uh, after the war, uh, a lot of, of of effort, money was spent, um, you know, developing the the train systems because the there just simply wasn't the space, nor were there the um, the availability of fossil fuels. So they took a different approach from a, a slightly resource constrained um, standpoint, and also from the, the standpoint that uh, you know people lived in higher density, so it's easier to put mass transit in. Contrast that to uh, you know the um, particularly the western United States or, or Canada where, you know, the entire population is spread over a large land mass, it becomes much harder to, uh, to service it with, uh, with mass transit. And so, uh, you know, it, it fell out of favor very quickly, especially as, you know, people's affluence grew after the war and, uh, and the car became, uh, you know, a, a, a very big picture of, of personal freedom. And uh, nobody gave a moment's thought to uh, the cost of, uh, of fossil fuels or any of the geopolitical issues in the 1950s and 60s. It was um, it was just uh, taken for granted that uh, that everybody could drive, and that uh, putting money into the interstate uh, road system was a was a good use of money. As you put it uh, in the book, is this myth of fast forward, things are starting to change. Yeah, you have the you had described that in the book as being the sort of the, this myth of infinite resources that we had going on in uh, mm-hmm. the, the mid 20th century. Exactly. And, and now what's starting to happen is that we're getting the convergence of, of all of these various things, creating a, you know, creating a, uh, a change in, in, in reality. And it, you know, and it doesn't really you know, matter which, which of these issues we look at, they, the, the, whether they are individually catastrophic or not, collectively they do cause us an awful lot of problems. So you get people hearing about the issue of peak oil and that, and that the world is you know, at the at least halfway point in oil uh, extraction, and that demand is going up 
faster than we're finding new supplies and that, you know, price volatility is going to be in the way. Um, and, you know, peak oil could be, could certainly be an issue or it may not, but, but the point is, is that there are other issues that are, that are working at the same time. The cost of supporting this immense infrastructure of, uh, of roads is, you know, is, is being driven up uh, very rapidly uh, and those costs have to be paid by, you know, not only society but also through the, uh, through the, you know, the, the costs of, um, of roads themselves, road tolls. Uh, taxation and, and of course, ultimately, uh, you know, inflation on price of fuels and cars, and uh, th- this becomes a this becomes a, a, a real problem. And all these converging issues: inflation, peak oil, um, you know, the coming of carbon taxation on uh, on fossil fuels, which is already in Europe and uh, wending its way slowly into North America, uh, with coupled with all the geopolitical issues. Um, are, are starting to uh, starting to take roost, and the, and the, the simple fact of the matter is, is that you know the price of, uh, of fuel and the costs associated with it are going to, uh, rising so quickly that we're marginalizing more and more and more people at the uh, certainly at the lower financial status and, and the, the people at the lower end of the middle class. So we're going to marginalize more of these people, and the only way that they're going to be able to, you know, get from point A to point B is through uh, is through some sort of a mass transit system. Now, in Europe, the mass transit system has never really had the stigma of being extremely bad. I mean, certainly there's been, you know, cases where it, it, it's been shoddy at best. But in recent years, with the amalgamation of the the, uh, the transborder uh, rail systems and putting in high-speed rail. Um, getting into competition, they're they're actually starting to compete like much like the airlines, and uh, the quality of service, of course, is uh, you know can be can be much higher, and uh, and so what what's starting to happen is is that demand is, for use is going up, so it really paints the right picture of of where things are going to go once we are in a situation where the costs and the geopolitical issues of using um, you know automobiles just uh, just are no longer supportable uh, in North America. And uh, I think the, the the big problem is is trying to get the thinking, um, you know, at the at, at the societal level and at the political level to start rebuilding the infrastructures, you know, within North America, so that we can be ready to um, you know to confront these problems head on. You know, and that and really that you you hit the nail on the head, and it really is it's a perceptual issue. I think we're facing more than anything. I'm not I'm not belittling the issues with regards to industry and and manufacture and the things the the uh, the infrastructure that needs to go into building the vehicles and supplying fuel and doing all these things to solve these problems. But really, all of it starts as you pointed out with with you know consumers and and so if the consumers don't have this sort of belief that things can be different and and I guess it's really rewiring our brains as well as our society. Um, we're, we're you know we're living in cities that are designed and most of us are living in suburbia and um you know the cities are just not designed for efficiency with regards to personal transportation and and all of these things so it, it really does require now back to the vehicular side i mean just to the personal vehicle so in this sort of interim assuming for a second just you know just taking on faith that this the personal automobile automobile will go the way of the dodo bird as you surmise in your book or perhaps um you know just be reduced greatly over time which is a premise i would tend to agree with um in the meantime let's just talk about the case of what do we have now available what what are the different uh, technologies that are available and i really want to get your take on sort of each one well there are, there are numerous ways of getting you know so-called green automobiles and 
really the the um, the question you know becomes um, these are are really just a an interim technology. I don't believe that any form of personal transportation is going to be uh, prevalent in the you know the the midterm. And by that I you know I it's my crystal ball is no better than anyone else's. But I, I would certainly predict that within 40 years time that the uh, the amount of personal um, vehicles on the road is is not going to continue to increase. It will start to uh, wind down if it isn't already you know very getting very close to zero the, the the point is is that having too much personal transportation and too much freedom causes society to sprawl everywhere and this puts trouble on uh, on all forms of uh, of infrastructure it causes our homes to be too large it causes the uh, it causes our uh, you know the, the heating systems in our homes to be um, you know to be inefficient because the houses are spread apart rather than you know sharing common walls and being more energy efficient and um, so in you know in the in the interim period we we have all of this uh, infrastructure uh, you know suburbs and so on that have been built that we still have to service so i think what's going to happen is we're going to start to see in the short term we're going to see more localized driving we're going to start to see suburbs become little individual villages um, you know, onto themselves, places that we play, work, go to go to school, go to church, go to shop, and that the intercity transportation then starts to be filled up with coach and uh, and uh, you know new rail systems that would be uh, rebuilt, so that we're not doing as much you know commuting. We're certainly not going to do the 50 mile a day commute um, that you know that people think of doing now. So when that starts to happen, first of all, the vehicles can be a lot smaller. They can also be um, they can also be a lot, uh, a lot more specific to doing a, a single task of getting a person from point A to point B. So we will see things. Uh, we will still see internal combustion engines, um, without a without a doubt. Um, although they will have smaller engines and be much more European-like. And I, I, but we will see, you know, uh, more technologies like the hybrid, where we we mix a combination of gas and electricity. Although we have to recognize that, um, you know. Putting a hybrid car out like a uh, like a Toyota Prius, for example, um, you know, gives you uh, at best about a you know 30 or maybe 40 percent improvement in fuel costs, and um, it's not uh, it's not certainly going to if we bring in you know carbon taxation on fossil fuels, it, it's not going to be enough of a solution. It's still going to make the uh, the fueling cost too expensive. I think we're going to see a lot more. Uh, neighborhood battery electric vehicles, and, and certainly they can be very low technology vehicles using lead acid batteries that are already out there now, um, right through to more uh, exotic uh, vehicles that use you know lithium ion, lithium ion polymer batteries, zebra batteries, or other types of technologies, but that are using zero carbon electricity to charge them up. We can talk about that in a in a few moments. Sure. Um, we. You know, one of the big uh, things that people believe are going to happen is uh, is this massive switch to hydrogen, and and I think that there's just an enormous amount of confusion that's that's built around this. The you know the the industry ads that you see on TV with water you know benignly dripping out of the tailpipe are nothing <laughs> but nonsense. Yeah, the marketers really got a hold of that one. Now, I'm very fascinated to hear you you talk quite a bit about uh, dispelling the myths of hydrogen and really do a great job in the book of uh, of laying it all out there. And I, and I, as I said. I learned a lot, but we're going to save that for after. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. We're talking to Bill Kemp, who is the author of The Zero Carbon Car, Building the Car the Auto Industry Can't Get Right, and we'll be right back on Green Talk Radio. Listen to Living Green. 
effortless ecology for everyday people, a weekly online audio program featuring champions of sustainable living at personallifemedia.com. Okay, and we're back. This is Sean Daly, and my guest today is Bill Kemp, and he is the author of The Zero Carbon Car, Building the Car the Auto Industry Can't Get Right. And when we left before the break, we were just starting to talk about hydrogen, and, and I said you covered it quite well in the book, and I was really fascinated to learn some of uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the facts uh, around hydrogen production uh, as a, and hydrogen as a, as a potential fuel source for vehicles. And I know that um, you, you mentioned a few things, which just kind of really blew me away, which is, and I had heard, you know, you, which it's interesting when you've got companies like BMW that are out there I th- uh, that are promoting this as the fuel of the future, you think, well, you know, these guys have done their research. They're, they're, they're not stupid. They're good engineers. They're good marketers. They're going to pick something that's a really competing technology that, that has legs. And then I, I, I'm reading, the, you know, the sort of the, some of the information that you have in here about that they're essentially in most situations, there's a net negative uh, energy production in, in terms of producing carbon, um, and and even just the fact that people, uh, sorry, car, I meant to say hydrogen, that in terms of producing hydrogen, uh, most people don't even realize the fact that you know it goes. You have to go back to the source that you're just talking. Even with electric cars or, or hydrogen cars, you're talking about what you hear from the marketers and the companies is about. You know, they say oh, it's a zero emission vehicle, but that's only in terms of the actual usage in the car. It doesn't have anything to do with the source and how that fuel was produced, and that that's Absolutely. where we really need to look. Absolutely, it, you know, it's been it's been said that the you know a fuel a fuel cell vehicle that takes hydrogen and uh, converts the hydrogen directly into electricity and water uh, is uh, twice as efficient as the average. Um, internal combustion engine vehicle is today and th- that is perfectly true nobody's going to deny that uh, however if we uh, if we put in a, uh, a high quality um, uh, electric uh, hybrid vehicle uh, that has uh, the ability to do some range off of uh, off of electricity then uh, then all of a sudden that uh, difference in efficiency disappears and that uh, a car that I can buy today uh, is is actually uh, more efficient uh, or just as efficient than a uh, fuel cell hydrogen vehicle in the first place. And then if we take it one step further and say, well, where is the fuel coming from? We find out that 99.9% of all the hydrogen on the planet today comes from natural gas. We uh, we can then uh, take a, a little bit closer look and realize that, that, uh, that we're actually better off burning the natural gas directly in a, in a, um, in a hybrid electric vehicle that we could put on the road today, then we are converting it into hydrogen first and, uh, and putting it through a fuel cell car that no one knows what the costs uh, of, um, of are going to be in the, in the future. Right. So this is just an enormous amount of hype. In fact, hydrogen, uh, when you look at it from the well to wheels, looking at the entire life cycle, you're, you're looking at a, a number of multiple times more greenhouse gas emissions. Um, than if you uh, than if you just burn gasoline directly in a uh, in a typical uh, uh, you know high fuel mileage car that you can buy today for what would have to be a fraction of the price of one of these future cars that doesn't exist yet. Yeah, and then and this is where people just don't realize. I mean, it's you know it's all it's the mar- again it plays right into the hands of the marketers is that there, our eye is on the wrong ball. It's all about if what we really care about is the carbon profile and the carbon emissions profile of not not only the car but what goes into producing the fuel for the car. Then that's really where the rubber meets the road. Unfortunate metaphor to use there, but um, or you know, analogy. But yeah, so that's I mean that's basically. Um, 
you know, what we have to be looking at. I'm just going to read from the book real quickly here. This summarizes this really well. You're talking about the myth of zero emission vehicles. You say that uh, many, many people refer to hydrogen and electric cars as zero emission vehicles, a statement which can be misleading. I'm paraphrasing slightly. Um, an electrically powered vehicle that is recharged from electricity produced from coal has a similar carbon dioxide emission profile as a typical gasoline powered vehicle. By comparison, the same electric vehicle charged with hydroelectricity has an emission profile four times lower than that of the gasoline model. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and and of course we you know we we have to look at the efficiency from from well to wheels from start to finish over the life cycle because it's the efficiency that is what costs society in terms of primary energy usage. It's not just the uh, you know the the actual fuel that you stick into the vehicle, but it's the it's the uh, energy that it takes to extract the primary fuel to get the crude oil out of the ground or to make the electricity by burning coal or, or in the case of cleaner energy from, from uh, renewable sources. And we have to look at all of that. Plus, we have to look at the efficiencies and the carbon inputs and, uh, related to actually building the car, building the roads and infrastructure, bridges and so on, and, uh, and then the, uh, the energy needed to maintain it. And the, the, the simple fact of the matter is, is that there are far too many people on the planet to uh, to support the uh, amount of energy intensity that our uh, that our current mobile lifestyle uh, you know is demanding another point you make in the book is about the inherent just energy inefficiency of just the personal automobile on, on an average car you, you I think you mentioned that it was one percent efficient in regards to moving the weight of the actual passenger absolutely absolutely if you you know you just think about it if a if a you know a typical car uh, you know, has a, has an efficiency of, of forward motion of about 10%, and the uh, car weighs uh, 10 times what the passenger does. Then you've got a you've got a total uh, total efficiency of 1% or less. Even the you know supposedly super efficient uh, micro car, the smart car, um, you know, which gets very high mileage, is still only you know a percent or or so uh, you know energy efficient in its job of moving around a person in their lunchbox. So it's um, so the the problem the problem is is that we're just using far too much energy to uh, and and resources to uh, move these uh, move people around and uh, we can we can improve these numbers vastly by uh, by moving to you know higher quality um, you know mass transit systems that run on uh, on green electricity. Right. Well, and and you know I think also so. Uh, and it's kind of hard because it's like I want, I want to talk to you more about the mass transit system, uh, you know, idea of the future. But I think really w there's so much money going into the marketing and the development of these technologies for per improved personal transport. I think it still has a lot of merit to continue to talk about that for so long as it, it's uh, in effect. Because you know, no, none of us know. As you point out, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't we don't know how long that's going to be the case. But certainly into the the very foreseeable future, we're going to be dealing with uh, personal vehicles in this car in this country. And, and another interesting factor here is the development in countries like China, where they're just sort of hitting our 1950s, you know, with regards to that, that becoming, they're just for the first time buying individual automobiles on a large scale basis. And, and these things, which is frightening, but it, but it's true. And they're going through that sort of, you know, personal automobile renaissance, as it were, at the same time that we're looking and taking a hard look at our, our um, vehicular lives and uh, Absolutely. If, you know, if you uh, you know you think about it, there's there's more than uh, four times the population in China the, than there is in uh, the United States. So uh, there's an awful lot of room for growth and buying uh, and buying vehicles. And in fact, to sort of uh, paraphrase that, uh, China um, just pushed Germany um, out of the number three world uh, largest um, car manufacturing uh, position, right behind uh, Japan and the the United States. 
so it won't be too many more years before they move um, into the into the number one position. And then when you start to look at you know growth that's happening in Southeast Asia and the and the you know the massive wealth uh, that's that's happening there, and of course the energy uh, consumption and resource consumption of these countries. Um, you know, it, it's no wonder that we're we're starting to see all the geopolitical and uh, pricing, you know, issues that are starting to happen with um, with uh, fuel oil and uh, and all resources for that matter. So, so um, it, it, it okay. it's going to be a very uh, a very interesting time. But you're absolutely right; the car will be here for, you know, a, a number of decades, and certainly in most people's uh, that are listening to this lifetime. So, you know, the really the the question becomes is you know. Are there reasonable um, alternatives, uh, you know, to uh, you know, to the standard technology that we that we have here? And I and I do believe that, you know, one of the best transition technologies is the plug-in electric hybrid vehicle. Okay, you you do believe in that technology? Well, I believe in it in the sense that it's a good transitional uh, technology. It's uh, it's still on a on a total energy efficiency basis is still very low because you're you're still moving a a very large mass of car to move a. A relatively low mass of payload, the person. So no matter what you do, it's going to be um, a relatively total energy loss. But on the uh, on the other hand, uh, the technology is is certainly uh, is certainly viable. The, the and it has the ability to greatly reduce the uh, the greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, I would argue that the fuel used to move one of these vehicles uh, could be set to uh, to uh, run with zero carbon and. Um, and therefore uh, completely negate the need to even think about um, developing uh, hydrogen vehicles as an alternative. So if you were using a clean source, so and, and you know, I, I believe in if like you want to get control of this because it, it can get really complicated. I mean, if you start looking, you say, okay, well, so I, let's just pretend I have an electric vehicle, and then I wish I did really did have one. I hope to have one soon, but you know, and they're, unfortunately they're really expensive in this country, right? That's another problem. It won't go there. But then you have to say, okay, well now I'm I'm somebody who gets it, and I'm going to say I'm going to look beyond the just assuming that my electricity source is clean because maybe it's not. I'm buying from PG&E. Well, I've got solar panels. So it's, you know, I guess you have to really produce 100% of your own electricity to know, or you can go to one of these sort of um, energy market brokers that will let you buy quote unquote green energy. And what they do is they put the amount of money you spend with them, they put in green energy into the grid because, you know, the grid itself, people have this fantasy of, you know, uh, my plant generates energy based on one source, whether it's coal or nuclear or nuclear or solar or whatever it might be. And then that comes and flows into my house in hundred percent form. But you know, the energy grid and the market is very com complex when you actually look at it. And so, you know, if we're to buy in on that level, you'd say, okay, I'm going to go with a green energy company that will basically sell, um, the energy that I buy, it'll, I'll, I'll buy it from them. And then they'll basically put that much into the grid as a green energy, assuming that they do what they say. And then another way, which I prefer, is to just generate it yourself completely. That way you know there's no question. It's completely green. And in our case, we, we have solar and we generate you know the, the majority, not 100%, but we're, we're getting closer. Um, in that case, I guess, is the ultimate green automobile the one where you, you generate, whether it's solar or wind, or if you're lucky enough to be able to do like microhydro or something, um, generating that energy yourself. Uh, I guess then you have to also capture and store it. Uh, in such a way that you can then use it in your car. Uh, yes. yeah, and, there, and therein lies the rub. I mean, most people that are thinking about using um, photovoltaics, which tends to be the most common means of, of generating um, you know, your own green electricity, requires that the car be plugged in during the daylight hours when most people aren't at home. They tend to be at work and 
and then we get into really complicated issues of, well, do you generate the electricity from the sun, store it in batteries, then use those batteries to charge the, uh, to charge the vehicle later. So, it, you know, this is a, a very, very complicated thing. And let's, let's be quite honest, most people are not going to go to the trouble of buying their own, uh, you know, photovoltaic panels and, and generating it on their own. So in, in, in most cases, we're going to get our green electricity either through, uh, through a, a power broker, as you've just explained, um, or you know, you're, going to, you're going to be in a, in a location that uh, has a, a percentage of its electricity on the grid already green, and then you're just going to simply subscribe to buying that energy directly from your, uh, you know, from your regular retailer. Um, you know, some places like Ohio, it's 100% uh, you know fossil fuel for the most part. It it becomes tricky. You've got to um, you know they're using coal, so you'd have to go to an energy broker to buy the green power. Other areas, uh, you know, maybe using uh, hydroelectric power to charge up the batteries. But the but really, the, the atmosphere doesn't care where the uh, the carbon emissions are, uh, as long as the um, you know as long as the trading process is is transparent and uh, and honest then the brokering of uh, of green electricity across the uh, the transmission grid is a perfectly acceptable way of ensuring that you're getting green power into your uh, into your vehicles and that'll be the least cost way and i think for for the you know for the time being people will do that and it allows you the ability to you know plug the car in when you're at home charge it up at night and you know be ready to do your commuting the the big problem with uh, with an electric only car becomes uh, one of range for the most part uh, you know, even some of the more advanced vehicles can only get a couple of hundred miles and then need, you know, several hours of charging time. And this is where the plug-in hybrid electric vehicle, uh, you know, comes into play in that the, the vehicle can can generally do 90% of your, you know, your day-to-day commuting on electricity only. And if you uh, exceed that distance, instead of the car being disabled on the side of the road with a dead battery pack, a small high-efficiency um, generator system turns on or uh, a secondary drive motor kicks in and uh, and powers the vehicle now obviously is the fuel that's going in to power the uh, you know this this generator or secondary engine um, you know has to be green as well and so using uh, you know using standard standard fuels such as uh, you know gasoline or diesel fuel is going to be pretty pretty tricky but if the uh, if the fuel can be made with a you know from a zero carbon source, so in the in one one example would be to use um, you know biodiesel that is that is produced from non food um, uh, from non food products or or uh, ethanol that comes from uh, cellulosic sources that is non non food grade um, materials again, uh, then it's possible that the combination of the two fuels can give you a a totally zero carbon uh, fuel input. And reduce the amount of liquid fuels that are required by uh, by society by probably some 80 percent. So, using electricity for for the vast majority of the uh, you know of the transportation needs. Now, you mentioned uh, cellulosic ethanol, and I was going to ask you about that. You know, again, this kind of begs the question: Why, if there are these zero carbon potential technologies out there, are are are, are companies and in the industries putting forth things like? Uh, hydrogen based on you know production based on methane, which has as we were talking about earlier that higher carbon profile, similar to gas, which isn't really a solution and lower a conversion. And then when it comes to ethanol, sort of the the inferior food based choice when we're having worldwide food shortages and we're diverting our food. Why why are those being promoted versus the, the cleaner, greener, more sensible ones, sustainable ones? 
Very, very, very simple answer. Because we don't value carbon. The problem is, is that the atmosphere is considered to, to be free, the public commons, and that uh, right now we can we can dump whatever we want into it uh, with a, with uh, without any uh, any penalty. And so the so we have not bothered putting a price on the carbon that uh, that society dumps into the uh, into the atmosphere. Now that that is starting to change, and certain certainly the Europeans are uh, are charging a, a carbon tax on. Uh, um, on fossil fuels, but the but the rate um, uh, and the value that we're putting on it is far 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 too low. And of course, in North America, we've been loath to even consider this idea because it's been our you know um, almost our God given right to uh, you know to use unlimited amounts of fossil fuels and to have all this personal freedom. So it's it would be political suicide to uh, to put a proper taxation on. Um, on the uh, on the fossil fuels vis-a-vis a carbon tax uh, because they they just know that people want to do something about the environment but they don't want it to affect uh, them directly they don't want to be taxed for it the problem right they don't want to be taxed for it and they yeah. don't want to be taxed for it yes and you know it, it it's a it's a simple situation you know the it doesn't matter which uh, one of the thousands of reports that are out there, um, probably most likely the Stern report out of England, is the, the best one that, that you know typifies the value of of, uh, of putting carbon into the uh, into the atmosphere. And you know it it really you know needs to be quantified quickly, and we need to stop dithering. The problem is is that you know climate change is something that's a, a, a relatively slow uh, motion type of uh, catastrophe. People in their day-to-day lives don't see it, but on the other hand, if the price of gasoline doubled because of a carbon tax, they'd see it immediately. They'd but get they it. wouldn't see the upside benefit. Right. And and so this this cause and effect relationship is is um, at a bit of a skew. Now, if all of a sudden, you know, it was uh, you know snowing in um, you know in in the United States uh, in July, and there was a foot of snow on the ground, and it was you know could be attributed to climate change. You know, people would probably say, hmm, maybe we should do something about it, even if it is going to cost money. But of course, um, it would be too late at that point. I mean, if that's if we're, the whole problem. Yeah. And you know, so the naysayers of of, of climate change, who are thankfully now falling fewer and fewer, uh, you know, people are, you know, they're beginning to understand that it that the effect is real. The, the problem now is quantifying what the what that value is and how we, uh, you know, fairly apply it across society and do it in a way that is. Uh, aggressive enough to cause primary f- fossil fuel use to drop, um, you know, uh, across the world. And there are numerous ways that can be done. You can you can tax uh, fossil fuels. You can put uh, an efficiency penalty um, into things so that they have to be, you know, at a certain efficiency level so that we're not using as much primary energy. You know, making it so that houses, uh, the property taxes of houses, skyrocket if they if they pass a certain square footage. I mean, which is sort of a personal version of the cap and trade. Absolutely, and yeah. you know, or we could reduce the number of people on the planet. You know, we've got uh, you know uh, six and a half billion now, projected by mid-century to be you know nine billion people. We've got um, you know half of the world's population starting to become industrialized and affluent, and starting to you know fight for the same natural resources and fuels that uh, that we are uh, are trying to use here you know, in North America. So, you know, there's there's different ways of doing it. And the problem is, is none of them are simple. They're mm-hmm. all extremely complex. They require very strong, long-term leadership. 
and you know we don't have that yeah well we're going to take a break right there i have one more uh two more questions for you and i wanted to do one follow-up in regards to um, climate change and peak oil when we come back we'll talk about that and then i want to just he- quickly hear your uh your also your story about the building of a you had built it as part of the book in fact you had built a zero carbon car and i'd like to hear about that journey as well so we will be right back uh and this is green talk radio sean daly i'm talking with bill kemp who is the author of the zero carbon car building the car the auto industry can't get right we'll be right back Listen to Living Green, Effortless Ecology for Everyday People, a weekly online audio program featuring champions of sustainable living at personallifemedia.com. Hey everybody, this is Sean Daly. We're back with Green Talk Radio, talking with Bill Kemp, who is the author of The Zero Carbon Car. You can find out more about that book online at thezerocarboncar.com or aztext.com, A-Z-T-E-X-T.com. Bill, when we left off, we were talking about just a little bit about um, uh, peak oil, and I, I wanted to dive in there because I recently had a guest on Green Talk Radio, Andre Angelantoni, who was a part of the Post Carbon Marine Group, and he talked about that the real issue is peak oil and not climate change. He's not a he's not a climate change naysayer by any means, quite the opposite, but he says that peak oil is really the bigger issue of the two, and that in fact, uh, peak oil will actually cause climate change to reduce automatically because of the lack of availability of the fuels that are primarily uh, causing, um, uh, and I'm paraphrasing (laughs) dangerously here, but uh, that was essentially where he was coming from. It was a fascinating argument. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I I definitely, I I know the theory well, and I do agree with it. I think that the, I think that the issue is, is that we have to look at um, the whole situation of, you know, what peak oil is and how it, uh, and how it is, you know, tied to climate change and so basically the theory is very simple we've reached the point where the world has used uh, you know approximately half of the available um, fossil fuels the remaining uh, the first half were very easy to get and cheap the remaining half are going to be much more difficult uh, to uh, to get our hands on both for uh, geopolitical and geotechnical reasons and we can see this all over the world where, you know, take a look at the, uh, you know, the United States where, you know, the lower 48 used to be the, the world's biggest producer. And now the, uh, you know, the number of uh, wells are, uh, that are drying up are, are, are astronomical. We're seeing reductions everywhere um, in the easy, easy to get oil. So it, 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 this, this fossil fuel is going to be harder to get. But at the same time, the demand is continuing to rise. It's rising domestically. It's rising in Europe. And more, uh, more importantly, and to the point is that it's rising you know, at an astronomical, almost exponential rate in um, in the developing world, and you know, in China and Southeast Asia, as they become more affluent. Now, um, as this ha- occurs and the demand goes up, we're all competing for the same resources. It's going to put a tremendous uh, pressure on not only the price but also on the availability uh, of these of these fuels. And and what we're going to see is uh, you know extreme volatility in pricing as the price of fuels go up, as scarcity goes up, and as we start to see less and less fuels available. Um, it, it is very possible that um, that the demand will will drop off uh, as people can neither afford to use them, <clears throat> or they're just not available to you. So it, it, the two points of, of climate change and uh, peak oil are, are heavily uh, interrelated and form just uh, two of the arms of of this whole issue of uh, the, the new paradigm of reality convergence, as I call it. Um, you know, couple in uh, the inflationary pressures of rising. Uh, insurance and operating costs and 
the cost to keep infrastructure operating, roads and you know, bridges and so on. It, uh, it it makes for a very um, a very scary and costly paradigm in that people you know just will not be able to afford to drive uh, the way we have, uh, nor heat such large homes or uh, you know in states that are run by uh, you know fossil fuels to run them uh, you know to run uh, you know high electrical bills as well so, yeah, and and, par- and part of what andre was talking about as well was the effect in terms of the transportation and and you know sort of the worldwide chaos of, of the those price fluctuations based on the cheap cost of bringing goods to the doors and and such that that, that would really be um you know part of the, ma- the major effect there yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at uh, the way transportation of goods on, you know, these massive container ships uh, that are brought in from, from China, they're, you know, essentially, you know, huge incinerators for low-grade heavy fuel oils. And, uh, you know, the, the cost right now is not, uh, is not so great, but uh, as the, uh, you know, as the price of primary fuels go up and as, and as carbon taxation uh, starts to, to build up and availability of these fuels, we're just not going to be bringing in, you know, two-dollar Barbie dolls from uh, from China. It's just not going to. Uh, it's just not going to happen. The the, the the rampant consumer way of life that we've got right now, that's uh, so heavily globalized, is going to be uh, affected by this. And we're definitely going to see a, a tremendous amount of uh, of relocalization of the way people live in the uh, you know in the coming decades from it. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And I'm curious, I wanted to spend some time um, before we have to go. I wanted to hear about, I know the last half of the Zero Carbon Car book that you wrote is talking about your own experience with your team in building a, a zero carbon vehicle. So we'd like to hear about that, what you learned, lessons learned, and, um, and what you ended up with and how that all worked out. Well, it was uh, it was quite an interesting uh, thought when we were first uh, looking at uh, doing the book and uh, you know putting it together. The research uh, was was fairly straightforward. I mean, most of uh, most of which I had already understood, you know, um, at a at a, at the you know at a fairly in depth level. So that was pretty straightforward. But the problem is, is that it was a uh, you know you can create a, an intellectual um, story, but uh, the problem is people say, well, you know, but it doesn't work in practice. So I thought, well. What a great idea! Let's uh, let's actually build a vehicle that that runs on uh, zero carbon electricity and and zero carbon uh, um, liquid fuels, and see if we could uh, just prove that we don't need to worry about waiting for some, you know, hitherto impossible technology of uh, you know of hydrogen vehicles that you know that need technologies that don't really exist today. So the concept was to take um, uh, uh, an existing vehicle and. Uh, I'll admit right from the front that if we had a bigger budget, I would have uh, preferred to make, make some fundamental changes in the design right up front. But in any event, uh, we took a, uh, a 2000 um, uh, Mazda Miata, uh, pulled out the internal combustion engine that was inside of it, and replaced it with an electric uh, electric drive engine and, um, and lead-acid uh, lead batteries, making, in, in essence, a battery electric vehicle. So that was stage one. So in this particular car, it had a um, built-in charging system so that you could you could run the car for approximately 20 miles on a full charge, which is not um, a very great range, but uh, it was about all we were going to get out of that um, that weight of a vehicle using um, using the primitive lead acid technology. I think the point was is that it was cheap. It was uh, you know a quick way to get it done. And uh, also, uh, we wanted to make the plans available to uh, anyone who wanted them so that, uh, you know, other people and experimenters could take the basic concept and, uh, and refine it and perhaps use more advanced battery technology and, and so on. 
Now, that was one half of the vehicle. The next half of the vehicle was to, um, is to create the um, liquid fuel side of it to, uh, to give the car the uh, essentially unlimited range. So what we did is uh, contacted a company um, in Florida called uh, Fisher Panda, who make a, a very high grade of uh, compact marine generator. And uh, we, um, we had them modify the unit so that uh, it would um, not only fit, but uh, give us the power levels that we needed to, uh, to, run, this, uh, to run this vehicle. This is a, a, a based on a um, three-cylinder Kabuto diesel engine. And, um, so this is a hybrid electric diesel, essentially. Well, no, it's it's a strictly a diesel engine right now, uh, driving an electric generator. That's its. Uh, oh, I see. I, I see. Okay. okay. Sorry. Continue. And uh, so, it, the beauty of this unit was that um, we could get a very high power level in a very small space, and it would uh, it would also allow us to run it off of a, a zero carbon liquid fuel, which I'll explain in a moment. So the next step then was to mount the uh, unit in the trunk of the uh, of the car. And we installed a, uh, a small industrial computer system called a programmable logic controller, or PLC as it's known. Uh, these are off-the-shelf um, industrial controllers that you can program to, to, uh, to do all sorts of control functions. And uh, we mounted that in the, in the vehicle, and we took out the, uh, the, front of the dash where the stereo and uh, air conditioning and heating controls were, and replaced it with a small touchscreen. Um, like you would see in a, on an ATM machine for a banking machine, and uh, plug that into the um, into the, the programmable logic controller. So the the next step then was to write some uh, control software that would orchestrate the operation between the diesel engine in the trunk and the electric system and charging systems. And the idea was is very simple: is that the unit uh, you could hop in the car and um, drive along for the first uh, up to 20 miles. On electricity only, and then as the batteries became depleted, the um, the control system would fire up the uh, the generator in the back and charge up the uh, the battery bank and allow you to drive the car. And of course, the the car could continue to run um, essentially unlimited distance until you uh, until you ran out of uh, liquid fuels. And then once the car uh, was either plugged back in again to charge it back up, or you stopped. Um, it would uh, it would then top up the batteries and then shut the generator set off itself. So it would perform this little uh, orchestration and make the the system you know seamless and and automatic. And the um, then the the next step uh, after the car was functionally built was to uh, be able to come up with the sources of zero carbon electricity and zero carbon uh, liquid fuels. So uh, on the liquid fuel side, as you uh, as you talked about earlier, one of the previous books that I did was uh, called Biodiesel Basics and Beyond. And what, what, um, what one of the things that I had done in, the, in that book was to look at how we could use non-food grade um, materials to provide uh, a, a diesel fuel equivalent that would you know, meet all the fuel standards and um, put that into this, uh, into this uh, zero carbon car. So, we, so anyway, we created the uh, zero carbon biodiesel, popped it into the, uh, the tank next step then was to be able to um, plug the car in anywhere, uh, no matter where we were in, uh, you know, in my, my home area um, of Ontario, Canada, and to plug the car in so that it would get zero carbon electricity. So w what happened there was that um, I contacted one of the uh, electricity retailers and told them that what we wanted to do was to buy a block of electricity that came from a wind farm uh, in the province. and 
rather than selling that electricity to a homeowner through the uh, through the wires infrastructure to uh, retire the green attributes of that power right away and attribute it to the car so that as the car was plugged in and charged no matter where it was it would be we would know that it was getting wind power electricity to uh, to charge up the battery so, so essentially you pre-bought a uh, credit green credits uh, as it were Yes. For the car, okay. Yes, and this is uh, actually the first time that mobile credits have, uh, have ever been used in this, uh, in this application. And so the, what, what the, I guess the ultimate point is, is that it allows the grid infrastructure, no matter what the, um, you know, the majority of the source of power to be, it allows the, um, uh, the purchaser of the green power to, uh, to buy a certain amount of green electricity, get it to, you know, to wherever the location is that they plug in. And... Uh, so we're getting a zero-carbon electric fuel, a zero-carbon liquid fuel, but because the vehicle can can do essentially uh, a, you know a high percentage of you know typical day-to-day commuting, probably you know in excess of 80 percent, it means that the liquid fuel requirement for for transportation is is only about 20 percent, and this is a pretty standard sort of uh, calculation that. Um, that I talk about in the first part of the uh, the book, looking at you know transportation statistics uh, from North America and Europe, and so what it would mean is is that um, if we were to convert all the vehicles on the road today just at the snap of a finger, then we would immediately reduce the liquid fuel requirements by 80 percent for uh, for the road transportation uh, uh, sector, and of course uh, if uh, there was enough value in carbon. Um, Credits, then we would, or in carbon itself, then we would be able to purchase these um, uh, these liquid fuels that uh, were made from zero carbon uh, sources, and uh, be able to not only reduce our primary fuel requirements dramatically, um, you know, maybe by 26, 27 percent total in uh, the U.S. alone, but we would uh, reduce our um, our greenhouse gas emissions by uh, at a minimum of a third. And what I really appreciate in this section of the book as well is how you really you break down. You do sort of the macro issues, and then you dive into literally down for, even for the, the the car technology enthusiasts or even people that aren't necessarily that technically knowledgeable. Literally every every part of the process, uh, from the battery to the cables to uh, you know the, that you use the regenerative braking, um, the DC motor, all of the, the components are literally and there's photos of everything. So for anybody who's really interested in sort of taking a literally a, a peek under the hood of what was done, uh, it's all here in the book. It's very fascinating. And um, unfortunately, that is all the time we have. And it's been a fascinating conversation. I really have to say, I would love to have you back on the program again, Bill, in the future. Maybe we can zoom in on a particular technology or, or alternate, alternative fuel, such as biodiesel or something like that, and, and drill down a little bit more into that because um, you've got a wealth of information. Yep. That would be just great. Well, thank you very much for having me again. I uh, appreciate helping you out. Yeah, well, it was our pleasure. And uh, my guest again today has been Bill Kemp, who is the author of The Zero Carbon Car, Building the Car the Auto Industry Can't Get Right. He's a vice president of engineering for an energy sector corporation. And he is also the author of several other books, including The Renewable Energy Handbook, Smart Power, and Biodiesel Basics and Beyond, as well as several DVD videos. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you again next time on Green Talk Radio. Thanks as always to everyone listening in today. Remember, for more free on-demand podcasts, articles, videos, and other information related to living a greener lifestyle, visit our website at www.greenlivingideas.com. We'd also love to hear your comments, feedback, and questions. Send us an email at editors at greenlivingideas.com.
Find more great shows like this on personallifemedia.com.